We have, we have been focused on the subject of revival for the last several weeks. I believe this might be week five that we have and are discussing revival. And as I said a moment ago, basically coming from Second Chronicles chapter 7, around verses 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. And this is a marvelous promise from God. When we see events occurring within the world around us that are signs of God's judgment because His will is not being done, His ways are not being followed, and the emphasis is on His own people, if my people will do these things. And so revival deals primarily with God's people, and it initiates a work of God within His own people that is extremely necessary or essential, it's essential, to the will of God being done in the earth and to the gospel being spread powerfully in the earth and to the spirit of God going and manifesting in the earth. And we perhaps don't realize this or think of this often, but the, great, the biggest impediment really to the manifestation of God's word and presence and power in the earth is a lack of spiritual vitality within his own people. This is the truth. And that's why the Second Chronicles deals and is addressed to his own people. And so this morning, I thought I would begin in Acts, uh, the book of Acts, chapter 7. And I just wanted to read uh, something that comes to us from the testimony of Stephen as he is giving a history, basically, of God's working with his people. And he deals in, in this verse, he's talking about Moses. And I might say just before I read, I read this this morning that there's so many wonderful books on revival. Let me give you a title that you, you might be interested in. Difficult to find, but it is titled, I'm in the process of reading it now and I find it extraordinary. It's titled Glory in the Glen. Glory in the Glen. And it deals with revivals in Scotland during the early part of the 1800s, the 19th century. And um, right on through the, from the early part of the 1800s, right through the middle, right through to the end, the latter part, and into the uh, 20th century as well. And it deals exhaustively, I would say. It chronicles all the various moves of God that were significant and tremendous within Scotland. I had no idea. Uh, we uh, have been talking about the Hebrides, of course, the part of Scotland, and the great revivals that occurred there in 1949 to 1952. And yet there were revivals that occurred in the very same location many years before that. In fact, even about 10 years before the one in 1949. So Scotland has, Scotland has been the beneficiary of tremendous moves of God. But you'll enjoy this one, Glory in the Glen. And the writer examined uh, the, record, the, the uh, record on these revivals and moves of God exhaustively, and it's tremendous to, to read. And so Acts chapter 7 and verse 31, let me read this. It says, when Moses saw it, when Moses saw it, when Moses saw what? He saw, he saw something that was extraordinary. He couldn't explain what it was. And it was a bush that appeared to be burning. And it was a manifestation, really, of the messenger of God, the angel of, 
of God was manifesting to Moses and the manifestation was that of a bush that was burning that was not consumed. It says Moses, when he saw it, he wondered at the sight. He was attracted to it, what he saw. And there was something within Moses that was drawn to this. And this actually was given for the benefit of Moses. It's a wonderful thing. I, I just want to read this because it's principle here. There's a principle here. When your heart becomes hungry for something more than what you have, and when your heart is burdened and concerned for the plight of people around you who do not know the Lord, and when you get to a point where you start to judge people's you know, behaviors and lament the things that people do, and then when you get past that point, and when we begin to realize that people's behavior is a result of something else, then we're no longer just focused on the behaviors themselves, but we realize that the behaviors are a manifestation of a problem, right? The problem. And what the problem is, is the problem is that people are locked in sin. They're locked in sin. And the behaviors testify to that. So when we, when we come to that place, then we, we come to a place where we, we say, Oh, Lord, um, well, we say, Lord, save that person. Well, what does that mean? And how does the Lord save a person? And so our heart begins to cry out. Our heart begins to cry out. We begin to pray. Not even formally, but we begin to pray because our spirit is praying and asking the Lord to move. And saying, oh Lord, if you don't move and if you don't manifest yourself to these individuals whom we love, there will be no hope. And so this kind of burden then begins to grow and develop and we come to a place where we're looking for God and we're looking for a manifestation of God. And Moses was in a place where he was crying out for God and looking for God and looking for a manifestation of God. And that's the reason why this came to him when it came. It says he wondered at the sight. Then Moses did something that is just wonderful, and this is what we should do too, is that he drew near to that sight. He drew near to it. He went toward it. And as he drew near to, uh, to behold it or to see it, then the voice of the Lord came unto him, saying, can we see the sequence? The heart cries out for God. God manifests himself in a certain way. The individual whose heart is crying out for God then begins to move toward that which God is showing them. And then as they move closer towards that which God is showing them, then the word of the Lord comes to them saying. That's the way it works for you and me too, as well. That's a principle. And I wanted to begin with that principle this morning. Also, there is a feature, I don't know if feature is the correct word, but there is an aspect of revivals that we need to look at very closely this morning. And this is that revivals are communicable. They are communicable. What do you mean by that? Well, let me give a definition of communicable. It's able to be communicated to others. 
something that is communicable, is something that is able to be communicated to others. And I came across this little statement I thought was, uh, it, it's helpful. It helps us to understand the idea that there's something about revivals where it is communicable. And something happens to a person in revival that when they go and testify to that which occurred and that what happened to them in revival, it begins to happen where they tell the story. And this is uh, uh, something it says, uh, dealing with things that are communicable. It says, listen to this, it says, the value of the product, supposing you're selling something that you consider to be of great value, in other words, why would you sell it? And why would anybody buy it? If there's no value in it, no one's going to buy it. You're not going to waste your time trying to, trying to sell something that no one will buy. It has to have value. This is the idea. A product has to be valuable. So you invent a product that is extremely valuable. Let you decide what the product is. Well, now you have to be able to communicate to other people the value of this product. So here's the statement. The value of the product must be communicable to others. If you cannot communicate the value of this to others, no one will be interested in it. And what happens in revival is that the things of God and the reality of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and His saving grace and His power to save from sin and set free from all kind of bondage, that is made so real and so powerful that those who have experienced it themselves deeply within their own spirit and soul are able, enabled, they are enabled to communicate that as they go and as they speak and as they share and as they sing and as they testify and as they work. It's communicated from them because it fills the innermost being. And that which fills our innermost being is communicated even though we're not aware of it. It's communicated and goes forth. That's the great feature of revival. And that's why God works through, to, uh, works through revival, because he so transforms the inner lives of his people that his people now take on a needed condition in their spirit that's able to be communicable or communicated to others. We often think of that word uh, communicable as it as relates to diseases which is, I suggest, you know, is the negative side of the idea. Uh, many years ago, maybe in the 18th, uh, early 19th century, there was a, a great sickness and disease that spread probably globally, and it was called consumption. And if you read some of these old books and testimonies, you read where people's, people are talking about maybe a loved one, a wife, a, a husband, someone in their family, that they were... Um, sick with consumption. and So I said to myself when I first came across, what in the world is that? Consumption. Why do they call it consumption? And they use the word consumption because the effect that this had on people is that they just wasted away. They shriveled up. They wasted away physically. They went from 200 pounds or whatever it was down to 120 pounds. They just wasted away and it was as if they were being consumed. And so they called it consumption. You know, it's TB. We call it tuberculosis today. Consumption. Then they found out that this was something that was communicated from one to another or was communicable. And so we use this word with relation to disease, but I want to use it with regard to revival 
And I want to say that in the spiritual realm, this is a marvelous, marvelous thing. That this great work of God that has... Uh, that we see in revivals, and this has been true of every revival we could name, and every visitation of the Spirit that we can go back and read about, there's something happened within people that as they went forth and told it uh, to others, the effect that it had on them then began to manifest to others. And so I wrote this, Revival Atmosphere Fosters the Condition of Spirit that is required for transmission. And so it was very evident then, very evident as we begin to look at these revivals, is that there's a condition of spirit that is brought about within the individuals who are revived by the word and presence of God. And that condition of spirit that is brought about is necessary for the transmission of the things of God to others. In other words, for effective ministry. You ever uh, listen to someone telling, uh, the, giving, a, giving a testimony about something that was so powerful, something the Lord did for them? There was a visitation of God to them. One of these great experiences that they had in their lives. And as they begin to talk about and testify to it, and this is what happens always in revival, but you, you, you've ex- you, you have experienced this with listening to certain people at certain times. And here's what they would say as they would begin to talk about that which the Lord did at a certain time, at a certain place in their life. And as they talk about it, it is being refreshed within their spirit as they discuss it and as they think about it and as they contemplate it, they revisit it. They revisit it, right? They revisit in their memory. And here's what they say. I can feel it right now. (laughs) I can feel it right now. And you'll see the emotion, oftentimes the emotion will begin to manifest, and you'll see maybe a tear will come, or you'll see the, their visage begin to change and be transformed by the power of that which they experienced then. Even revisiting it in memory brings that about. And they say, I can feel it now, I can feel it now, and you, as they tell the story, you begin to feel and measure what they are feeling This is communicable. Multiply that by hundreds and thousands. And this is the way revivals have spread over the length and breadth of the earth. And this is why they are so necessary. Because they bring about a condition of spirit on the inside that is capable of doing that. With all due respect, oftentimes we don't have a condition of spirit on the inside that's capable of doing that. And so we have meetings, you know, we have church, we have Bible study, and we have prayer meetings, and we have these and that. We have a special meetings on this and that and the other. We have all these kinds of things, and we enjoy them. You know, the saved and the converted, they enjoy them. But there's an ingredient that's missing, and that ingredient that is missing is the ability to communicate this to the lost in a way that arrests the lost and brings them to an awareness of God. Awareness of God. In my own life, I can take you back to 1968 and 1969. Some of you cannot even go back that far. Rachel has no memory of 1969. (laughs) And Seth, as old as he is, He's the same age as I am. You know, Seth and I are the same age. We're born on the same day. <laughs> Just a few years separated. 
something began to happen, in, and I'm going, not going to go into any detail other than to say I could not explain what was happening. But I knew that I was being visited and I was being engaged in a kind of communion and communication in my thoughts. And I did not know where it came from. I just knew that it was extremely real, but I can guarantee you this, that there was somebody whose heart was in spirit. There was somebody, at least one or two, whose spirit was in revival. Your spirit can be in revival. Your spirit can be in revival. And all it needs for your spirit to be in revival is for your spirit to be revived, right? And for the face of God, what you need to do is you need to humble yourself. And you need to pray. And you need to seek His face. And you need to turn from your wicked ways. Say, well, I don't have any wicked ways. Yes, we do. And the idea is when the face of God, when we begin to experience the face or presence of God, then we begin to see that we do have wicked ways, which we did not call wicked before, because we didn't see them as being wicked. But now, in the face of God and His presence, we see them as being wicked. And we turn from them. And when we do that, then we begin to experience revival with our own spirit. And when we begin to experience revival within our own spirit, then you begin to pray for somebody, and, and it's guaranteed by the laws of the spiritual realm, the, the kingdom of God, the government of God, that that person for whom you are praying is going to experience the power of that prayer. They're going to. And I was the recipient of that. And I have some idea who the people may have been, but I don't know exactly. May have been maybe different. If it hadn't been for that, I would not be where I am. And so people say sometimes, I can feel it now. I can feel it now. So I want to ask the question, what will it take? What will it take for your loved ones to experience the presence of the Lord? I want to say that there are individuals around us who are very close to us that we are concerned for and concerned about. And we're living in a period of time within our society now where the darkness, the spiritual darkness, is growing. There are many individuals who are lost in a place where they have no idea that they're lost. And hope of their recovery is shrinking. And are we willing to live out the rest of our days and have no impact upon them? Are we willing just to talk about them, just to pray once in a while for them? Are we going to come to a place within ourselves where we're going to say, this cannot be. I refuse to accept that they will be eventually lost. Am I being overly dramatic? No, I'm not. I'm speaking the absolute truth. There are many out there in the society, including some of, who are very, very close to us personally, who have no awareness of sin, no conviction of sin in their life. No sense of the impending doom that awaits them spiritually. No sense of it. Because the spiritual darkness is so extreme now around us, out in the society, 
that people do not see these things and will not see them at all, will not, will live the rest of their dies, their days and die in the state that they lived. Unless there is a manifestation of the presence of God. There must be a manifestation of the presence of God. They must become aware of the presence of God. They must become aware of God. And until they become aware of God, they will not be convicted of sin. You can say they're wrong and living wrong, and they'll just say, well, that's fine. You make your decisions, and I'll make mine. Right? But there's no conviction, no awareness, no realization from within them that there's anything wrong in their life. And there must be a manifestation of God, awareness of God. And that always happens in revival. Therefore, that's why we're talking about revival. Not just to talk about it, but to enter into it and to experience it ourselves. Well, in Acts chapter 8 and verse 4, this is just, I just read this verse because of the idea of the way the gospel went forth in the early New Testament church. It says, therefore, they that were scattered abroad by persecution, they went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria. And as you continue to read in Acts 8, you'll find the wonderful things that happened in Philip's ministry in Samaria. And then as Philip went down into the desert area, he had that wonderful visit with the Ethiopian eunuch and so on. And so this is the way it was a revival spread like this, the power of God, the manifestation of God in a similar way to sparks in a great fire where the sparks and the wind carries them and they begin to ignite that which is out ahead of them and they leap over rivers, the fires, they leap over rivers, they leap over roadways and they leap over large expanses of land and they ignite that dry brush that lies ahead and they replicate themselves as they go forth and that's the reason revivals are often referred to as fire and sparks and flames because they're like that. I invite you to open Luke's Gospel chapter 24. Luke chapter 24 and verse 13 I found myself returning to this passage of Scripture so many times. You may even say, (laughs) are we going there again? (laughs) Yes, we are. We're going here again. Because there are some things that we need to see here that we haven't seen before. You're familiar with a follower of Jesus. His name was Cleopas. Cleopas. And... He is one of these men now who is walking on the road to Emmaus on the day of the resurrection of Messiah. And you might say, well, who is he? And you may be interested, and I'll say to you, there's some very interesting biblical studies on who he is and who the second person was that was with him and so on and so forth and all that's interesting. But you know what? It doesn't really matter. It's interesting but it doesn't really matter all that much. It says, And behold, two of them went that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was from Jerusalem about threescore furlongs. I'm reading from King James' translation. A furlong is one-eighth of a mile, and so 60 would be just a little bit more than seven miles. It says in verse 14, And they talked together 
of all these things which had happened. See, some people say that the second person with Cleopas was Luke. I don't know. It may have been. I don't know. Another very capable Bible teacher who is very, very interesting, his view is that the second person with Cleopas was simply the wife of Cleopas. It was his wife. And they both had gone up and were there present at the crucifixion of Messiah. That Cleopas was a relative, according to the Joseph. So, they were going home. I don't know. Whether it was Luke or whether it was his wife is not essential to the teaching here. But the two of them were walking now towards Emmaus, about the seven miles. It says they talked together of all these things which had happened. And it came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, I love this, came to pass that while they communed together and reasoned, that Jesus himself drew near, and I see another principle here. There's a certain kind of there's a certain kind of fellowship that you can enjoy with others. There's a certain kind of fellowship in the gospel, a fellowship in Christ Jesus, where you can enter into a certain kind of communion together about the things of the Lord, and as you do, Jesus himself will draw near. <laughs> but they're literally walking down, and they're talking about the events of Messiah and what had happened. Their hearts are broken. And Jesus himself drew near and went with them. It says, but their eyes were holden that they should not know him. There, there have been there, a lot of people say, well, what was there about his um, visage or the way he, his appearance that permitted them to not recognize? There wasn't anything about his appearance. The reason they did not recognize him wasn't because of his appearance being altered it, so much. It was because their eyes were holden, the old English word holden. They were prevented from seeing, prevented from recognizing him. You see, no one ever recognizes Messiah Jesus based on the flesh or the natural. We don't recognize him based on the natural. We just don't say, oh, there's Jesus. The recognition of Jesus always comes by a revelation of himself. And unless he reveals himself, he is not known. And there are certain conditions that must be required or met for the Lord Jesus to reveal himself to us. It says their eyes were holden that they should not know him. And so as they walked and Jesus began to teach them from the scriptures that these things were necessary to have happened and why would they be, uh, why would they be so upset by them in the extent of, that their hearts would be broken? Because basically he was saying and teaching them this is the revelation or this is the fulfillment of scripture. And he went through all the scriptures on it. There was a sermon that was preached a number of years ago on uh, Easter Sunday, and the reason I say Easter Sunday was because that's the way it was presented to the people. And the preacher presented us a testimony of Cleopas, and it was presented as if being presented by Cleopas. It's very interesting to read. It's fascinating, and I thought it was quite well done. So 
it was as if he was Cleopas telling the story. It's very interesting to read it. So then they arrived in Emmaus, and it says, you remember how it said that Jesus, they didn't know who it was, but he acted as if he would continue on, and they said, no, no, come in with us and have some fellowship and food with us. And verse 30, and it came to pass as he sat at meat with them, he took bread and blessed it and break and gave to them, and their eyes were opened, and they knew him. Now again, and I'm emphasizing these things because these are spiritual principles again, they knew him now in this moment because their eyes were opened. And so what I want to say is in the evangelization of the lost and in the great purpose of revival to go forth and to bring about an awareness of God's presence to people in a broad spectrum, there needs to come a time when their eyes are opened. And so as Jesus broke the bread and blessed it, it says their eyes were opened and they knew him. So again, they knew him because their eyes were opened. In other words, he revealed and manifested himself to them. And as soon as they came and realized who he was, it says he vanished out of their sight. He disappeared. He just disappeared. I want to say that I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there needs to be a manifestation of Messiah Jesus to people. And as you pray for your loved ones, I invite you to pray for a manifestation of Messiah, a visitation of Messiah where he will reveal himself to them. You know, all your labors and all our labors and all our arguing and debating and even some of the things that we consider to be ministry will be ineffective. See, there was a large part of this period of time where there was great ministry being given to them and they felt the ministry and their hearts were burning within them while he opened the scriptures to them, but they still didn't know who he was. They did not know him until there came a time when their eyes were opened and they were permitted to know him. And I want to say that there's a great need for eyes to be opened and awareness of him. What will it take for that to occur? What will it take for the eyes of individuals to be opened? Your loved one that you're thinking about right now. What will it take for their eyes, her, him, his eyes to be opened? Can I suggest this to you? It'll take the power of revival which is communicable to come to them and visit them. And that may be through you. It may be that you and I that we need to have our spirits renovated by humbling ourselves and seeking the face of God and turning from any wicked way that he reveals that is in us. And if that is conditional to his visitation, and it is, then it's also conditional to the kind of spiritual transformation in us that we need to be able to actually minister in such a way where that work that is done within us as we present it and as we minister and talk and share 
that that same power is manifested to others. So instead of now their eyes being holden or prevented from recognizing, now their eyes are opened and they recognize who he is. I have no doubt that the people that I'm thinking about right now, if their eyes were to be opened, they would become a new individual within five minutes. It would just be, I mean, they would become a brand new individual within less than five minutes. Their whole life would change, absolutely transformed within just a few seconds and minutes. It would just be a tremendous change. And I'll guarantee you this, that all those things that they have been doing that were wrong, that you could see from afar were wrong, they will know are wrong, and they will be the ones to turn away from them as quickly as they can possibly turn away from them. And you won't have to tell them about the need to go and do restitution and, and undo those wrongs that they have done. They will know from the inside that that's what they must do, and they will do those things when their eyes are opened. Oh, Lord, manifest yourself to us in such a way that as we go forth, our lives may properly testify of who you are and your presence might go forth and in such a way that you will open the eyes of those that they may know you. So Cleopas and Luke, if it was Luke, or his wife, if it was his wife, as soon as this happened now, it's late in the day, and as soon as this happened, Imagine yourself, put yourself in that situation. And they rose up, they got up right away, the two of them, and they said, we must get back to Jerusalem and we must tell them this wonderful thing that has happened. He is alive. He is alive. He opened the scriptures up to us in such a way that we had never had them open to us that way. And when he opened the scriptures up to us like that along the road, we kept saying within ourselves, well, why could I not see that before? Why, why did I not see that before? That's so, that, I mean, that's so reasonable. Obviously, the scriptures teach that very thing. Why did we not see it? Isn't that the way you are whenever the Lord opens up the scriptures to you? Don't you find yourself saying, why could I not see that before? Well, you couldn't see it before because your eyes were not opened to it before. Right? That's the way it is. So what they did is they rose up the same hour. I'm just going to come to a conclusion because there's something here, I believe, that is a principle, something here that is, to me is a, is, a, is, an, is a biblical example of what we've been saying together now for several weeks that when there's a great revival, it is uh, as people go forth and testify, when they go forth and testify to that wonderful thing that God did in them, among them, in Wilmore, Kentucky, as the president of the university came, and we heard him on tape, a videotape, and he talked about the Great Visitation. And he said within a very short period of time, they had students from that particular uh, college in different parts of the country, the East Coast, the West Coast, up in Canada. And as they went and testified that the things that happened in Wilmore began to happen in the places where they testified. Do you remember that? That's always the way it is in revival. So I said, uh, where is the biblical precedent for that? Where is the, because they're always, see, anything that's true will have a scriptural precedent. Everything. I'll share, with, uh, share this with you. 
What began to happen with me, uh, since I mentioned back in 68 and 69, especially during the summer of 1969, is I began to find my thoughts began to go in certain directions that they hadn't gone in before. And as my thoughts would go into that direction, I began to see something as being true. This is what happened. I began to see something as being true. And then would come in my memory a Bible verse. For example, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. And I say, well, where did that come from? It came from Sunday school. It came from church. It came from my parents. It came from being introduced to the Word of God, which was good. But my eyes were not open to it then, even though I was hearing it. My eyes were not open to it then. Now my eyes are coming, are being opened. And this would happen repeatedly during that period of time. I finally came to a place where I opened the Bible again and began to read, beginning in Matthew's Gospel. But as I was uh, thinking, and as I was working, and, and so on, I would be thinking, and certain things would come to my mind by way of thought. Because I began to see that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Truth. I remember even saying to my mother, I said, Is there a difference between the, the Spirit of Truth and the Holy Ghost? <laughs> You see, I said, is there a difference between the Holy Spirit and the Spirit of Truth? Because I can tell you, I know that the Spirit of Truth is visiting me, but I didn't know if the Holy Spirit... <laughs> see, I'm going back. I didn't know if the Holy Spirit was... So I said, is there, a, is there a difference? Of course, no, they're not. They're the same person. Different words describing. But that's where I was. See, I was processing, going through and the reason I knew the spirit of truth was visiting is because these truths were coming, but they were coming to my mind, understanding, to see them and understand them. And then as I was reading in the scriptures, oh, here it comes, the very same thing. And that, in that period of time in my life, the first thing that happened in that period of time was the truth was coming in my thoughts, and then the confirmation was coming in as I read the scriptures. And I'm just saying that's the way it worked. I'm not saying that that's the priority list of it. I'm just saying that's the way it worked at that time. So what it said to me and what it says to me now is that that which is true will be testified to by the word of God, by the scriptures. And here it comes. Here it comes to the assertion then that as these mighty things of God that occur in the experiences of the Lord, where he manifests himself to you in your experience, that as you go and testify to those things, he will manifest himself again as you testify to them. This is absolutely biblical, and here it is. They rose up the same hour, and they returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven gathered together, and them that were with them, saying, The Lord is indeed risen, and has appeared to Simon and they told, this is Cleopas and his partner, and they told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in the breaking of the bread. They disclosed, we were walking to Emmaus. A third man came and walked with us. We didn't know who he was. Uh, he said, why are you so downtrodden? We said, don't you know what's been happening in Jerusalem? He said, uh, don't you know that these things must needs have occurred? And he began to explain from the scriptures why. And then we invited him in to have bread and some nourishment. 
and he took the bread and blessed it. Cleopas said, it was my home. But he took the bread and blessed it. And when he took the bread and blessed it, then we understood and saw and realized who he really was. Our eyes were open. He disappeared. So they relate all this to those in Jerusalem. Now what happened? They told what things were done in the way and how he was known of them in the breaking of the bread. And as they thus spoke, as they thus spoke, Jesus himself stood in the midst of them and said unto them, Peace be unto you. And so the same supernatural, marvelous, wonderful visitation that occurred to them in Emmaus, as they testify to it in Jerusalem, he appears as they testify to it. And as he does these wonderful things and reveals himself to you and to me, as we go forth and tell of those wonderful things where he reveals himself to us, and as we speak of them and testify to them, he will confirm them by manifesting his presence as we thus speak. Wonderful. Wonderful. May the Lord bless you, keep you, guard you, protect you in all your ways, minister to your deep spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.